church, if you could please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue in the book. We did verses 1 through 3 last week, and so this week we come up to verses 4 through 9. As you're turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart outside of Jesus. He is the ultimate. My wife and my family, they come next, my church, these things. But then there is this special thing. Some of you may can guess what it is. It's coffee. I love coffee. I drink probably too much coffee. And every now and then they come out with a study and they're like, oh, if you drink too much coffee, it's bad for you. I'm like, oh, no. But then like three months later, they're like, actually, it turns out we were wrong. Coffee is good for you. I'm like, okay, yes. And it kind of fluctuates back and forth. Coffee, for a lot of our modern businesses, some would say is the secret to success. There are many different wall decorations you can buy that talk about the greatness of coffee. And, oh, we would fail if we didn't have coffee. And there's memes of these little polar bears, and they're, like, dragging their face on the ground. And then underneath it says, I need coffee. Everybody knows how vital coffee is. One of my favorite wall decorations, I have to mention, is a piece by a man named Adam Ford. He's a Christian who does comics. He also does Christian satire. Well, he made a piece... And someone in one of my previous churches printed it out and then kind of adjusted it and like hung it up. It looked really nice in the break room. And it says this. He says, think of all the amazing things Paul accomplished for the kingdom. He did it all without coffee. And then there's a cup of coffee, a big cup of coffee. And in big letters underneath it says, we have coffee. And at the bottom he finishes, just imagine what we're capable of. And so I love that imagery. It's this idea that, well, look what Paul did and, and Jesus, but coffee. And sometimes in our life, we have things that serve as kind of our lifeblood, just like coffee does for many of our modern businesses, our churches, just our regular dealings in America. You get together, what do you do? You drink coffee. It's what makes us run. It gives us everything we need to tackle the day. Obviously, all this is exaggeration. We know that. That's why it's funny. But there's an element of truth to this in that there is something in each of us that serves as our lifeblood. It's that thing that makes us tick. It's the thing that gives us the motivation to keep going forward. It's the thing that equips us with what we need for the day or what we think we need for the day. Our lifeblood. Here's our main idea this morning. A church's lifeblood is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That is the thing that makes us tick, that empowers us with everything that we need to be able to live for him. It is the grace of God. This morning, our text is situated in between Paul's greeting to the church. Hi, how are you doing? I'm Paul. Grace to you and peace. He gives this little short excerpt, and then he gets into the meat of his letter right off the bat. He's got several issues with the church that he wants to address. This is where our text sits. It's right before that major portion of the letter. So let's dive in this morning. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together as we read from God's holy word. Just as a reminder, these words that we're reading is not the opinion of man. It's not even the opinion of Paul. This is the word of God. 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, starting in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you, 
because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship with, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray, church. Holy Spirit, we need your power this morning to flow through these texts of Scripture, to give us understanding and insight. We ask that you would work in our hearts, dividing and discerning their thoughts and intentions so that we might see and turn and be healed, that we might be continually transformed by the renewing of our mind. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So, as we dive into this passage this morning, we start in verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This is going to frame our conversation this morning. We are going to talk about grace, because if you look at this sentence, it doesn't end at the end of verse 4, or at the end of verse 5, or at the end of verse 6, or at the end of verse 7, but at the end of verse 8. So he gives this little sentence, and then he goes on a full-blown, almost theological exposition of, here's what I mean by grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would think it's simple, but there is a lot here for us to see. Essentially, Paul is thanking the Corinthians that they, thanking the Lord that the Corinthians have been saved. This is part of what he's referring to in verse 6, when he says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, when that testimony of Christ is confirmed is when we come to saving faith in Christ. We've heard the testimony of Christ, but then there's a moment where that witness is the word there. It's the same word we get martyr from. That testimony is confirmed in us. And we acknowledge, oh, this is true. Jesus is the Lord, and he is my Lord now. That's what he's talking about. That's what Paul is thankful for. That is saving grace. We're very familiar with this. But pay careful attention to the language here. Who is it that Paul is thankful to? It's not the Corinthians. Paul's not thanking the Corinthians for listening to the gospel. Look at the text here. I give thanks to my God always for you. So Paul is directing his thankfulness to God. And why is it that he does that? Keep looking. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So the reason that Paul thanked God was because he recognized that the grace that the Corinthians received was received from God because it was given by God. It is God's grace. It isn't our grace. It is God's grace. There is a special relationship here between our thankfulness to God and how we understand God's grace. Specifically, it has to do with how we understand the giving and receiving of grace. When I worked at Sonic as a young 20-year-old, 
I desperately looked forward to payday. Okay? It was me and Stacy. We had Kristen, and it was get off work at night and come home and dump all the change out on the carpet and start packing quarters and rolling change. And we looked forward to when that paycheck could come and supplement the tips that we got. It was vital. Well, when I received my paycheck from my boss, I said exactly what my parents trained me to say. Thank you. Got the check, went out, and then got ready to deposit it and put it in the bank. Well, one day on Christmas Eve, I was working and I received the biggest tip I'd ever received working at Sonic. It was $100. I about lost it when I got that $100. I took it out, and I knew it's Christmas Eve. People are going to be generous. I will work all day Christmas Eve. That's what I told my boss. I will work all day Christmas Eve because I needed that income, and I knew that would be a big day. So I would work, and someone that I knew very well, obviously, he knew a lot about me at the time, and so he had a special gift for me, and he was hoping that I would be his car hop that day. And I'll tell you, I planned it. When I see this guy drive in, I'm like, I want that one. (laughs) That's the one I want down there. He was a good friend. Obviously, I did not expect the $100 gift. When I received this tip, I said way more than just thank you. My paycheck, thank you. This $100 gift, are you sure? Thank you so much. It was huge. I felt way deeper than just thank you, but those are the words that came out. Now, in both instances, I was genuinely grateful. I'm grateful for the paycheck, and I'm grateful for that $100 tip. But the deepest gratitude, oddly enough, was for the smaller amount of money. Why is that? They're both financial gifts. They're both given because of work that I was doing. Both were given. Both were received. What's the reason? It's the same reason that we don't fall on our knees thanking our bosses for the larger paychecks that we receive today. We earn the paycheck. We've worked for that money. There's an agreement. I will provide for you services. You provide for me money. It's an exchange, a fair exchange, or at least it should be. We agree on it anyway. We deserve a paycheck. We expect a paycheck. We are due a paycheck. We are owed a paycheck. We are more grateful for that which we feel we least deserve. If we feel we deserve it, there is still thankfulness. But the depth of that thankfulness will not be as great as it would be for something that you feel you didn't deserve. I don't deserve this. What is this for? Husbands, you'll know this feeling I'm talking about. I can relate to you on this. When it comes around time for anniversary or for a birthday, I look forward to giving my wife something spectacular. And then I give it to her, and I'll usually hear something like this. You shouldn't have done something like this. This is too much. But then right after that, I know it's coming. There's this big smile. I look forward to it. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. There's a depth of gratitude that she feels in that moment because it's okay. I was expecting something, but you gave me this. What, what is this? We see it at Christmas time with our kids. We are more grateful for that which we feel we least deserve. Here's our first point this morning. Grace evokes 
thanksgiving. Grace evokes thanksgiving. Now, the word deserve that I used just a moment ago is very intentional. Notice I did not use the word need. We all need grace. Recognizing your need for it will not necessarily increase your thankfulness for it because you can need something and still feel a measure of entitlement. You can recognize your need but feel that I am partly owed this and that entitlement will erode your thankfulness. Being thankful for God's grace is less about recognizing that you need it and more about recognizing that you don't deserve even an ounce of it. That's what will increase your thankfulness. I'll say it again. We are more grateful for that which we feel we least deserve. And I'm going to share an example of this truth in action from the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Listen to this account. <clears throat> Luke seven thirty six through 50 is where I'm reading from. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, <clears throat> excuse me, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at the difference between the way Simon the Pharisee acted and the way the sinful woman acted. Do you know what the difference was? She knew she didn't deserve to be in Jesus' presence. Simon didn't know that. He didn't know, I don't deserve to be in your presence right now. He expected it. 
And Jesus almost spells it out for him with this small parable. The sinful woman was the one who had the larger debt, and Simon was the one who had the smaller debt. Only that's not the real picture. The parable isn't meant to describe their actual debt. The parable was meant to describe what I'm calling their debt perception. In reality, the debt Jesus is talking about is their sin debt. The woman is forgiven of her sin debt, and that same sin debt forgiveness is available for everyone. But the problem is, she recognized the depth of her debt. Simon didn't. He didn't. And there's different levels of our debt perception. Different levels of depth that we realize, I am this big of a sinner, that's how much grace I need. And the more that you realize that is, the more thankful that you are for that grace. And the more thankful you are for that grace, the more you express that thankfulness in your faith. That's why we hear these spectacular stories of a truck driver who was saved by the Lord, he couldn't believe it, and he wanted to be able to share God's word just like the evangelist that shared God's word with him. So he committed, I'm going to memorize scripture, and in a two or three year period, memorized a thousand verses of scripture just driving in his truck. He would turn on a verse for that day, he would listen to it over and over, he would memorize it, the next day he would do it again. Some days he would do two verses if they were short enough. What causes someone to do that? It's not his mind-blowing intellect. It's not his special ability. He's not some divinely sent person. He's a Christian. He's received a whole lot of grace. We all have received a whole lot of grace. We just all forget that sometimes. We have levels of forgetting how deep our debt actually is. By the end of the whole ordeal, Jesus forgives the woman. And do you know what the Pharisees said? Who is this who even forgives sins? Can you believe it? After the whole parable, after everything, they should have said, Lord, forgive me too, please. They deserved to be in Jesus' presence, but they actually didn't. They didn't recognize the depth of their desperation for grace. And do you know why they didn't recognize it? Because they were self-righteous. That is, having a measure of righteousness in myself. We hear about this all the time, though we probably don't use this term for it. Instead, let me point out when this is exposed, is when we say, I'm a pretty good person. That person's a pretty good person. Well, at least I'm not like this person. Let me tell you, you need just as much grace as the worst person on this planet. Hitler doesn't need more grace than you do. And he doesn't need more grace than I do. The more we realize that, church, the more thankful you're going to be for grace. You're going to be more thankful for it. 
One of the biggest reasons outside of being unregenerate that we become less thankful for grace is self-righteousness. We had a speaker at Man Up who many people knew in the area. Maybe Scott was his name. I didn't write it down, so I don't remember. But he used to be a pastor in the area. He was at East Gina, I think. He went over to, um, I'll remember it later, Searcy. Somebody said it. Thank you. Okay, over to Searcy for a little while. I think he's in Arkansas right now. Cersei, I'm, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. You can laugh later. Um, he brought a challenging and convicting message from God's word regarding apathy in our churches. And it's man up, so he tied it specifically to men. He said, men, like, come on, man up. We need to get, we need to get revived and rejuvenated. And he tied our apathy together. He didn't use this phrase, but it's what it was with self-righteousness in our churches. We're quick to talk about how bad off the world is outside of our churches, and that exposes to a degree how much we ignore how bad we are. We think that the things going on outside the church aren't happening here, and they surely aren't happening in us. But we're wrong. There is a direct correlation between our debt perception and the expression of our faith. The larger we realize that our debt is, the more we're going to turn to God's word. The louder we're going to sing. The more that we're going to pray. The more that we're going to request prayer from others. The less that we're going to care about what other people think about us as we seek to obey the Lord. The more that we will want to be in church around other desperate believers. A mature Christian doesn't just want these things. A mature Christian needs these things. Our maturity is expressed to a degree in how much we perceive the depth of our need for grace. Nothing else will seem appropriate considering the debt that's been forgiven us. It's the difference between doing these things out of obligation and out of desire. One of the keys to growing in your spiritual disciplines is reminding yourself just how little you deserve to be a Christian. The Corinthians didn't deserve it, and Paul knew it. And because he knew it, he thanked God for the grace that they received. If we want to be thankful, recognize your need for grace. So, that's how he begins. Then, look at verses 5 through 7 with me. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you were not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives thanks because of the grace that was given, but that's not in full what he was thankful for. If you look back at verse 4, Everything after the first three words here, I give thanks, describes Paul's giving thanks. I'm going to read it one at a time. I give thanks to my God. I give thanks always. I give thanks for you. I give thanks because of the grace given you. It goes on and on and on, and then it comes to what Paul is thankful for. I give thanks, verse 5, that in every way, you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Number two, grace enriches and enables for action. 
Grace enriches and enables for action. The word enriched here is not enriched like the improving of quality of life. That's how we often think about things, specifically with food. Man, the seasoning really enriched the flavor of the food here. That's not quite what it means. The Greek word describes an increase of wealth. It is literally to make rich. For those who attempted to memorize Ephesians some time ago, you'll, rec- you'll recall the word riches pops up multiple times in this book. And it's describing God bestowing grace and power or the greatness that it is to be God's people. Here's some examples. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8. The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. 118, the riches of his glorious inheritance. 2-7, the immeasurable riches of his grace. 3-8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 3-16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. The good life isn't to be found in what this world has to offer. You can be rich here and be miserable. Look at Hollywood. I don't want to speak lightly of these things, but look at the levels of depression among these celebrities. Pushing them to end their life. It's that same depression that we find here in Gina. And some of our students. They are convinced that happiness in life is not attainable. The most fulfilled you will ever be is when you are accessing the riches of God's grace in action. And you'll know this if you've never done this before, the first time you are involved in leading someone to the Lord. You will walk away from that conversation and you will think, I have never in my life felt more fulfilled than I feel right now. It makes us rich. Suddenly we have everything, even though we really have nothing. This is where fullness of joy is found for the Christian. Now notice what this enrichment entails. We are enriched in every way, in him, in all speech, and all knowledge. Here's what this means. Through Jesus, you have everything you need to be able to speak the gospel of grace. Sharing the gospel is not the job of the preacher, though that is one of my jobs. Sharing the gospel is the job of the Christian, period. We have all received the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. But it's difficult, isn't it? I'll be honest, it's difficult for me, and I'm a preacher. You start talking to someone, and what happens? Your heart starts to beat. You get nervous. Your voice starts to shake. Maybe your hands start to shake a little bit. You're thinking, I can't believe I'm doing this. I get it. Why is it so difficult? Some common reasons. What if I say the wrong thing? I've had that thought. Well, what if they ask me something and I don't know it? I've had that thought too. 
guess what? These are both addressed right here in the passage. What are we enriched with? All speech, all knowledge. That means, that doesn't mean that you were suddenly omniscient. When he says in every way, in all things, in all knowledge, not lacking any gift, that doesn't mean you suddenly have every single gift and every single language known to man. That's not what that means. It means that in every way that God is going to call you to speak out with the gospel, you will know exactly what you need to know, and you will be able to say exactly what you need to say. Why? Because God has given you grace. Grace does more than save us. Grace enables and equips us to be able to do these things. If you're a Christian, then even as the testimony is confirmed among you, the moment you are saved, that grace includes everything that you need to be able to know and speak the gospel to others. Paul is telling them, you have everything that you need. Because God has enriched you. This is called God's enabling grace. So saving grace saves us, but then we daily need enabling grace. God, I need an extra measure of grace today to help me get through this funeral. That's enabling grace. God, I need an extra measure of grace today in order to be able to share the gospel with my relative who has been militant against it for years. That's enabling grace. God, I need grace to not use foul language when these people cut me off in traffic because this is the 12th time today. That's enabling grace. It is all grace. It means that the only reason we can live for God in any meaningful way is because God has enabled us to do so as an act of grace. And just like with our first example, the more that you recognize your inability apart from God for these things, the more he will bestow it upon you. In the same way that our self-righteousness keeps us from being thankful and expressing it through faith, our self-sufficiency keeps us from being effective in our attempts to serve the Lord. We become convinced we can serve God without God. Isn't that ironic? Sometimes God will hold back fruit and success in order to show us that it is only from him and not our efforts or anything that anything will ever be accomplished. Psalm 127 verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's pointless. Yeah, but look, the bricks are rising. It doesn't matter. It's vain. You won't finish it, or it'll fall, or something's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth, increase. Only God gives that increase in growth. I'm going to read a passage for us out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 7 through 10. God gives Paul this thorn in his flesh. Listen to why. Paul gives us an insight here. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Do you get that? Paul was receiving these revelations, and Paul recognized, God gave me this thorn because if he hadn't, I would have become conceited. That is pretty transparent. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul recognized his greatest strength is his dependence upon the Lord. Our greatest strength is to be found when we recognize I'm weak. I can't do it alone. God, I need you to sustain me and enable me. That is where our strength comes from. When you share the gospel, the effectiveness of your witness is not dependent on you. It's dependent upon your dependence on God in that moment. In 1 Corinthians, look at the end of verse 7 again. It says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not equipped us to wait in idleness. He has equipped us to wait in in action. He wants us to be enabled and equipped until the revealing of our Lord. Yes, Garrett, but I'm tired. I've been doing this for decades, and it feels like centuries. My life is just packed full of things right now. I've got a job. I've got a family. They've got sports. I've got all these things I'm taking care of. Look, my job requires that I give this much time to things, and I'm just exhausted. Here's point number three. Grace sustains until the end. Grace sustains until the end. Look at verse eight. He's tagging this on. I, this, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait. And while you wait, look at verse eight. It talks about the Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way that saving grace is freely given and not deserved, in the same way that enabling grace is freely given and not deserved, God gives you something called sustaining grace, which is freely given and you do not deserve. Have you ever thought about why you still have faith when life gets hard, when tragedy strikes, when trials arise? Have you ever thought about why is it that I still believe, that I still trust Jesus, that I still sing, that I still go through this? I'm going to give you a hint. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing. Look at the passage. It is the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you? Who sustains us? Jesus sustains us. God is not going to save you for free and equip you for free and then suddenly start making you pay for grace. 
He's not some cheapo subscription plan that reels you in with a month free. And then you're stuck paying this thing, and you forget about it, and then you look at your account, you're like, oh, I need to delete that. And then you forget about it, and before you know it, you've paid for it for a year and used it twice. It's not like that. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.13-14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You are sealed with a guarantee until you acquire to the praise of his glory. If we could keep ourselves saved, we wouldn't need grace to begin with. We need God's sustaining grace daily. And just like both of our other examples, here our danger is becoming spiritually self-sustaining. We can get to a place where we may be reading the Bible, we may be singing, we may be voicing a prayer, but we are not depending on God to sustain us. We can do it ourselves without the vulnerability that comes with confession, transparency, and humility. To sum it up in a word, pride. Or to keep in the same theme of self-related words, the word can simply just be self. You are the biggest obstacle to God's grace. Your moral character, your strength, your stamina, but eventually your stamina will give out. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To become a Christian is to come to the end of yourself. Why in the world would we think that continuing as a Christian would be any different? Stop exhausting yourself. Lean on the sustaining grace of God. Verse 9, as we wrap up, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What all this points to is our final point. Number four, grace demonstrates God's faithfulness. Grace demonstrates God's faithfulness. If we want the world to see how great the grace of God is, it's going to require a transparent and truthful church. When I was young, I went to a church with my parents once. I wish I had continued to go to that church, if I'm being honest, but the Lord knows better than I do. I knew the church later after several significant changes had happened, but when we went, we walked into a church where we really felt like we didn't belong. Everyone looked way more dressed up than we did, obviously. Everyone acted impeccable. We felt like this isn't people who need grace. This is people who we need to impress. And sometimes people can come into our churches and get that impression because we want to look like everything is put together when it really isn't. We are trying in our own strength 
to make sure that we give the Lord a good name. But we don't realize that in doing it in our own strength, we are not giving him credit at all. The world doesn't need to see a church that has it all together. The world needs to see a God that can save, strengthen, and sustain people just like them and just like us. This will teach and show them that we serve a loving God, a merciful God, a strong God, and a faithful God. He will not fail you. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? God is faithful, church. And he's proved it by sending Jesus to die and save us from our sin. So start trusting him with more than just the forgiveness of your sin. Let's trust him with our lives. Be thankful Embrace God's enrichment and act upon it and trust him to sustain you to the very end because he is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are our saving grace. From you is our enabling grace, our sustaining grace to save us from the enemy of ourself. Teach us, O Lord, to depend less on us and depend more on you. Remind us daily of our need for you and the depth of our depravity that we might come to you and freely access everything we need from the incredible storehouse of the riches of your grace. Lord, if there is a soul in this room today that does not know the magnificence of your saving grace, I pray that you would overwhelm this individual with their need for you. For the rest of us, Lord, remind us daily, we need you. We love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.